Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. The playoff picture in Major League Baseball got a little bit clearer this past week. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 42 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you missed the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of the program. If anything, you can always call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured on the next installment of The Bridge. We've got a lot to do in this week's show, so let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the horn. It's not uncommon for restaurant chains to often hold promotions for the teams they sponsor with a free coffee or discount on a pizza the day or two after said team performs well in a recent game. But for one restaurant chain in Michigan, they didn't quite expect their team to perform that well as they did on Saturday afternoon. Also, the NFL continued its no-fun league campaign and reared its ugly head at the use of, if you can believe it, NFL teams showing highlights of their teams. That's right, we've got a twofer for this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Ruth Chris Steakhouse in Ann Arbor, Michigan really loves the Michigan Wolverines college football team. So much so that the restaurant decided to run a score big promotion from Sunday through Thursday following Saturday's game for the remainder of the season. Patrons will receive a percentage off their total bill equal to Michigan's winning point differential with purchase of an entree. What a great bargain for the team's unpaid football players who need to wait for Aladdin to snag them a loaf of bread so they can properly be fed. 
for the first week of the promotion, the restaurant teased that if Michigan beat Rutgers by, say, 20 points, the discount would be 20% off. How did the game turn out, you ask? Michigan had five times as many touchdowns as Rutgers had first downs. The Wolverines had 27 first downs. Rutgers had two, with the first coming with only five minutes remaining in the game. Michigan rushed for 484 yards. Rutgers had 34. Michigan passed for 119 yards. Rutgers passed for five. On third down, Rutgers was 0 for 17. Their total penalty yards was 34. The total yards gained in the game by Rutgers was 39. The Rutgers Twitter account even stopped providing live updates of the game with the score 14 to nothing. There would be seven more touchdowns scored. The final score, you ask? Michigan 78, Rutgers 0, the largest point differential for the Wolverines since 1939. If you're good at math, that means the steakhouse owed customers a 78% discount off their bill. However, Ruth's Chris PR quickly edited their Facebook post of the promotion to say that the discount would be capped at 50% and would not include purchases of alcoholic beverages. The restaurant also claims to be fully booked up until the promotion ends on Thursday. Well played, Ruth's Chris. Well played. Thankfully, the restaurant was able to find some room for Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh, who tweeted out a picture enjoying a half-off steak. However, collegiate players beware. The word discount and NCAA student-athletes mix just about as well as the glass of milk that Jim Harbaugh ordered to wash down his discounted meal. Let's quickly check in with the National Football League, who would have burned down their steakhouses if it meant providing teams and their fans with happiness. Starting today, October 12th, 2016, in the year of our Lord, teams can no longer shoot video inside the stadium during the game and post it on social media. They also cannot use Facebook Live, Periscope, or any other app to stream anything live in the stadium. Teams are also forbidden from swimming in the pool until at least one hour after they eat, and cannot take highlights of what happened on the field and make it their own. Teams are also forbidden from posting highlights from television to their social media accounts. Highlights are also prohibited from being turned into GIFs. Apparently, league execs want to make sure that content within the stadium is only hosted to team websites so that the league maintains complete control over their content. Violations of the policy will cost teams up to $25,000 for the first offense, $50,000 for the second, and up to $100,000 for each additional violation of the policy. Thus, the punishment for sharing videos now will exceed the cost of illegal hits to the head. That ruling does not bode well for fans of social media. What's next, NFL? 
Eliminating memes? One does not simply post highlights on their team Twitter of their own team. Will the most interesting man in the world have to stop drinking beer? Will good guy Greg turn bad? Bad luck Brian turn good? Scumbag Steve become a contributing member to society? Will the overly attached girlfriend finally let go? The success kid find misfortune? The grumpy cat turned cheerful? How will Willy Wonka give us his wisdom? How will we know when winter is coming? How will we be able to accept challenges? How will we fix our first world problems? Harambe certainly didn't give his life for this. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to keep the lights on. When we come back, an NL wildcard hero is the star of, wait, who? We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. The MLB postseason usually crowns at least one hero each fall. This year, it didn't take long for us to find one, but for fans of the New York Metropolitans, it's a name they'd soon like to forget. Here's this week's edition of, wait. Who? 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 The San Francisco Giants had to feel pretty good about their chances of at least getting back to the fall classic this postseason. After all, the Giants had won the World Series for the last three even years, in 2010, 2012, and 2014. But after an up-and-down year, the Giants found themselves in a must-win situation against the New York Mets in the NL wildcard game. With one of the best elimination pitchers in the history of baseball on the mound going for them, all San Francisco had to do was find a way to defeat Thor and his bullpen. Ender. Connor Gillespie. Wait. Who? Connor Gillespie played in the Cape Cod Baseball League during the summer of 2007, leading the entire league in hitting with a 345 batting average, and was later named the MVP of the Cape League. He was drafted by the Giants as the 37th overall pick in 2008 and got his first major league hit off Dan Heron on September 16th of that year. From there, Gillespie spent a couple years in the minors and was traded to the Chicago White Sox in 2013. After two years with them, he was designated for assignment, traded to the Los Angeles Angels, then designated for assignment again. The Giants brought him back for 2016. He played in 101 regular season games hitting 2.62 with 6 homers and 25 RBI he was given the start in the postseason because Eduardo Nunes was recovering from a hamstring injury. Good timing, huh? The 29-year-old Gillespie found himself up at the plate in the top of the ninth. Two runners were on, the game was scoreless, and one of the best closers in the National League was on the mound. Gillespie promptly hit a three-run home run over the right field wall to break the hearts of Mets fans, and propel the Giants into the divisional series against the Chicago Cubs. 
down two games to none in the division series. Gillespie struck again, this time against flamethrower Aroldis Chapman. Gillespie ripped a two-run triple deep into what's known as Triple's Alley to give the Giants the lead. It was the first time Gillespie had ever seen pitches over 100 miles per hour, and the first time Chapman had given up a triple to a lefty. San Francisco went on to win the game in 13 innings after more than five hours. Though the Giants had their magic come to an end on Tuesday night, imploding in the Knights to surrender four runs and lose 6-5, the legend of Connor Gillespie will live on in postseason lore. He finished postseason play with a 421 batting average and six runs batted in, and will most likely eat for free in San Francisco the rest of the year. That is, if the restaurant owners can pick him out of the crowd who can get your clutch postseason hit, and will keep Mets fans screaming his name in their sleep until next season? Connor Fuck Gillespie, that's who. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. I'll even show you how easy it is. We had a question posed to us by our fictitious producer, Eddie from New York. And a congratulations is in order for him. After a lengthy suspension from the show, Eddie's suspension has been revoked because of the content he helped provide for the show this week, finally doing his fictitious job. And as a reward, let's take a listen to his question for The Bridge. Hey, John, this is Eddie from New York. First time, long time. Just wanted to get your opinion with a hypothetical. For the past year or so that your show has been on, if you had to choose one team that won a championship to be the team that you follow for the rest of your life, which would be the one that you'd pick and why? So since the bridge debuted in March of 2015, I'll set the bar for answering that question as the last two teams to win the championship in their respective sports. That means we have the Kansas City Royals, the San Francisco Giants in baseball, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors in basketball, and the Denver Broncos and New England Patriots in football, though I have to make an addendum to that because I'm a Denver Broncos fan and they'll have to be canceled out, which means the Seattle Seahawks will be thrown into that list as well. I don't watch any hockey, so I can't answer regarding that. As for college athletics, those fan bases are usually chosen based on location or if you attended said university or college, so that's off the table as well. That being said, this is a pretty easy answer for me. Looking around at these teams based on the feelings that I currently have for them, you can't root for Kansas City unless you live in a flyover state in the middle of the country. The San Francisco Giants have had enough success to make them warranted of such an honor to switch to liking their team, but there's too many teams in California for me to pick them. The Cleveland Cavaliers are still part of the dismal Cleveland sports umbrella, so you can't be guaranteed that they will have success at too many times for the rest of my life. The Golden State Warriors have formed a super team, so you'd be called a homer if you went to like them. Aside from the disdain I have from the New England Patriots, 
once Tom Brady and Bill Belichick leave town, there's no way of knowing whether New England will continue its success or fall back into irrelevance like they were before Brady and Belichick came aboard, which leaves me with the Seattle Seahawks, meaning I would become a member of the renowned 12th man and hated by most NFL fans. If anything, the 12th man should be something that sticks around. There are several dismal franchises that still have incredible fan bases despite the performances of their team on the field. And I do have a small tie to the Seattle Seahawks organization from being able to write several stories on one of their assistant coaches who is now a Super Bowl champion. So that small tie along with the fan base hopefully not disappearing in the next decade or so is why I would pick the Seahawks in that small sample size. So that will be this week's question that I pose to you listeners. Which team would you switch to and become a fan of for the rest of your life? And I'll even open it up to include this year. So you have the last two years of champions throughout the four major sports and collegiate athletics. I'll open it up to that as well. And that includes the teams that were able to make the postseason, even including the wildcard teams that didn't get to play in the divisional series. So send that answer in to 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail, shoot a text, and your answer will be a one-way ticket to be on next week's installment of The Bridge. Let's take a quick break to keep the lights on. When we come back, we've got a great interview with a baseball mind that could help us break down what's happened in the MLB playoffs and some of the different matchups we can look forward to in the upcoming weeks as we get closer and closer to this year's World Series. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. This week's guest is none other than Bleacher Report's Zachary D. Reimer. He is an MLB lead writer for Bleacher Report, and he'll try to bring some light to what's been happening in the MLB playoffs. He's got a pretty solid handle on what's been going on. He obviously keeps up with Major League Baseball throughout the year. He also recently just put out a story on Bleacher Report entitled The Blue Jays vs. Indians ALCS Goes Through Andrew Miller which is 100% true. I'll attach that and some of his works into my show notes as well. We had the Blue Jays beat the Orioles, then beat the Rangers to move on to the ALCS. The Cleveland Indians swept the Red Sox. The Chicago Cubs were able to beat the Giants and advance after winning the series 3-1. to So those are all the teams moving on, and we have the Washington Nationals hosting the Los Angeles Dodgers in Game 5 of the NLDS on Thursday night. What a great way to end the divisional series with that game. That will lead us to the championship series to see who will be crowned World Series champions, and Zach has some ideas of how that might go down. You can also follow him on Twitter at Zach Reimer, that's Z-A-C-H-R-Y-M-E-R. He'll be keeping you posted throughout the rest of the postseason. You can read some of his writings and now hear his thoughts on what's happened so far in the MLB postseason and what we can look forward to in the next couple of weeks. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with Zachary D. Reimer. He is an MLB lead writer for Bleacher Report, and we'll try to help bring some sense into what's been happening in the MLB playoffs. Zach, how are you? I'm doing good, John. Thanks for having me on. 
not a problem at all. I'm looking forward to talking some playoff baseball. This seems to be the perfect time of year for people to finally take some interest in the sport. Before we get into some of the different storylines with that, I wanted to give a better sense of how you got to Bleacher Report after graduating from the University of California, Berkeley. Could you take me through how you ended up choosing the path of wanting to be a sports writer and more specifically writing about baseball? I think like every other sports writer, I mean, you grow up watching sports, you grow up discussing sports, and at a certain age, you just start obsessing over it. Um, that was me as a teenager and into college. Uh, after I graduated, this was in 2010, I did that spell where you go six months where you're looking for work and not finding for work and getting really, really depressed and increasingly desperate. Right. Um, and I believe I saw an ad in Craigslist that uh, Bleacher Report, which was then still kind of like a startup-ish type thing. It wasn't as big as it was now. Uh, they were looking for writers, and I I sent something in and did a couple of trial assignments, and um, we kind of danced around each other for a bit. And then finally, I think it was in October 2010, they brought me on as a full-time intern, um, which led to me writing about pretty much every sport and some entertainment items under the sun for uh, a year, year and a half. Um, and then in early 2012, uh, they, they said, okay, well, we like you. What do you want to do? And I, I said, I want to write about baseball. And it was really as simple as that. So my career has been mostly just good timing and luck. I don't think there's any actual talent involved. So, yeah, just um, that's my advice to young college graduates and anybody who wants to be a sports writer is um, have good timing and get lucky and you'll be okay. Is there a specific niche or topic that you write about when it comes to the sport of baseball? Or is it something that you're pretty much covering what's going on, whether that be a specific game or a specific series or a specific player? Is there something you can pinpoint as to what your typical day-to-day is like? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, too. When I first started writing about baseball uh, exclusively, I did kind of like more bloggy stuff, kind of like hot takey type stuff, where it was just kind of columns that were kind of supposed to be like hard-hitting opinion type stuff. But in 2012, you, you, as you remember well, it was the year that Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout had the AL MVP battle. And I think it was the year where kind of like more analytic stuff went mainstream and people started talking about stats and advanced stats uh, and kind of incorporating them in this uh, kind of an everyday way. And I started doing that too. And I guess at some point they figured out like, hey, Zach is – Maybe not very good with analytics yet, but there's an interest there. So I feel like in the last couple of years, I've kind of carved down the niche as more of like the analytical type guy. But I also do, you know, the occasional columns about historical stuff or cultural stuff. Um, this year, I've done a few uh, larger reporting projects that have had very little to do with statistics. I kind of do a little bit of everything, but it's mostly analytical stuff. Um, I feel like if you're going to talk about the game day in and day out and get into like the nitty gritty and the, the kind of details, it's kind of hard to do it now without referencing statistics, analytics, thing like, things like that. So that's pretty much where I'm at right now. And it's, it's a good fit given the dynamic that we have with the other writers. So it's all good. 
Right. I know you do a lot of different pieces for BR MLB 300, which is ranking specific players or going broader by ranking specific positions. And I'm sure that's not something that you can just throw together overnight. But as you mentioned, that seems to be one of the major things with the sport is having to be in that analytical state of mind. Are there any pieces that you've written that stick out to you as some of your favorites? Uh, well, the the project you referenced, the BRMLD 300, yeah, that's a piece, um, you know, for the first, it's, we've been doing that for four years now. Uh, the first two years, it was the BRMLD 500, which we started, like, right after the All-Star break, and it, we ended in late September. And I was doing 90% of the work, and it was just too much. And nobody really cares about the, you know, once you get past the top 300 players anyway, you're into utility guys and whatnot, so we cut it down. Um, and it's really just uh, kind of basically like analytic scouting reports of guys talking about how they function as players. Um, so I just I started that in early August. I wrapped up last week, actually. Um, and that's, yeah, that's like, you know, the typical day on that is start at 9 a.m., finish at 9 p.m., maybe even a little bit after that. So uh, that's pretty rough. Um, that is a piece that um, I put a lot of work into and I, I referenced the reporting projects I've done this year that I think turned out really well. Um, I did one at the start of the year, which was about minor league broadcasters and kind of the path that they take to uh, major league careers and how hard it is to break in uh, at the major league level. If you're a broadcaster, um, just because the, there's not that many jobs and they don't open up that frequently. So right. I thought that was a fascinating thing to look into. Um, and more recently, my big reporting project was um, I did a piece uh, uh, centered around an, an independent league ball player named Sean Conroy, plays for the um, Sonoma Stompers, who made history last year for being officially, this is confirmed by baseball historian John Thorne, the first publicly, openly gay uh, professional baseball player. So, and he was a kind of a big star of the book that Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh wrote uh, called The Only Rule is It Has to Work. They ran that team and they discovered him. They had no idea he was gay and it turned out to be um, a big kind of cultural experience and a, a larger experiment of these two baseball writers running a team. And so I kind of came in and did, picked up his story one year later and, uh, you know, I interviewed a bunch of people and kind of put it in a as much context as I possibly could, given the modern day. And so that was a piece that I worked really hard on. That's what it turned out uh, good as well. So apart from that, just kind of like daily, nightly stuff, uh, reactions to what's going on and whatnot. So it's been a year. Definitely. Watching as many games as you can, enjoying the sport like we all are. I'll attach some of those into my show notes so people can read up on some of the different things you've been up to. I know one of the tidbits from your Twitter bio is that you're a bat flip proponent. So I guess that means you're a fan of making baseball fun again? Bat flips just uh, in by themselves in a vacuum, they're good fun. I mean, they fit the moment, don't they? Where you know, you see the swing, you hear the crack at the bat, and you hear the crowd react. It's cool to just have the batter do a little, you know, a little flourish on it to kind of cap the moment off. Right. I think it just fits really well, as opposed to, you know, swing, crack at the bat, crowd reacts, player doesn't react. It's like, okay, there's something weird about that, like, to me. So I am very much a proponent of players living in the moment, so long as they don't overdo it. Like, for example, like the Jose Batista thing last year, the Rangers got on him. A lot of people got on him. I'm like, 
if ever there was a moment for an epic stare down and an epic bat flip, it was right there. After all that happened in that series, right. given the moment in the game, given the reaction of the crowd, you could say he was disrespecting the game. I say he was respecting the moment. Right. So that's that's my angle with bat flips. I I love them. Baseball should be more like Korean baseball. Bring them on. So let's get into the playoffs. I guess we'll have to paint the picture of what's happened so far before we can look ahead, and we might as well start with the NL wildcard game between the Mets and the Giants, which featured another masterful performance from Madison Bumgarner on the road in an elimination game. What else is new? It's almost becoming old hat when it comes to his dominance. Is he the best clutch playoff pitcher that we have going for us right now? Oh, right now, I don't think there's any question. Um, I don't have his stats in front of me right now, but I believe that the wild card game pushed his ERA for the postseason under two. And we're not talking a small sample size either. He got like a dozen postseason starts. Right. Um, and, you know, three World Series rings, one of which he literally, not literally, but, you know, basically won single-handed in 2014. Right. Like, that was not a great team. It was a good team with a great pitcher that they used often. And that was pretty much how they won that World Series. Um, He's, I mean, he's terrific. And, you know, the funny thing about that game is that for the first six or seven innings, Noah Syndergaard was the guy on everybody's radar because he was pumping 99-100, throwing strikes, striking everybody out, looking really better than Mazin Bongarner. Once he was out of the game, you kind of realize, like, wait, Mad Bum is still in there, and he's still cruising. And then he got that home run, and it was like, wait, he's going back out there for the ninth, going for a shutout. It's like it snuck up on you right? how good he was in that game. And just you knew he was on, on point when he's at his best, when he's throwing those high fastballs in that sweet spot where it's like you can't lay off him, but you can't hit him either. And that's right where he was that entire game. So he can kind of lull you into a, a bit of a doze. The way he pitches, it's just so it's so consistent, it's so clean. Um, it's not really flashy, but it's just really effective. And that's what happened in that wild card game. And at the end of it, you're just sitting there going, "Wow, that was something else." And it's amazing that his ERA is even better on the road than it is at home when it comes to the postseason, which is another just amazing aspect to his pitching game. And I could have easily brought up Terry Collins bringing in his closer in Familia in a non-save situation, something that Familia hasn't been great at, but he's also the best pitcher they have in their bullpen. And that wasn't the worst offense when it comes to wild card games and bullpens because Buck Showalter ended up going home after a loss to the Toronto Blue Jays with Zach Britton in his back pocket, who was the best relief pitcher really this year, one of the best seasons in baseball history, and he goes home after a loss to Toronto without putting him in the game. What were your thoughts about the way he handled that situation with his rotation. You know, as the game was going on, especially when it got later and he wasn't coming in, I figured there has to be something wrong with him. Like he warm he warmed up and he tweaked something or he right. pulled something because th- th- otherwise this makes no sense. Uh and then like literally like five minutes after the game ends, Buck Alter says he was fine. Zach Britton says he was fine. And I'm still sitting there going, like there has to be like, you know, he must have like, but this is pure speculation, but you still wonder if Showalter's protecting him. 
and Britain just doesn't want to admit something. Maybe he did report like, hey, I felt something, but I'm good to go. And maybe Showalter said, no, I'm not going to risk it and I'm going to protect you. But that's like the only thing that would excuse that. This is my problem with the term closer is that the term closer implies that you end the game. It doesn't imply that you're the best relief pitcher in the bullpen. And that's a massive problem that not just the Orioles suffered from, but a lot of teams suffer from. Don't call them closers. Call them relief faces. And the next thing you know, you have an Andrew Miller in your hands and you're winning ballgames. Right. I, um, it's, it baffled me because, like I said, the only thing that could excuse that is an injury that nobody wants to admit to because the weird part is, is that Buck Schalter is normally really good at running a bullpen. So I was baffled. Um, I just, like, I, I'm struggling to find the words, as you can tell. So I don't even know. Speaking of Toronto, since they were the winners, the last thing any American League team would really want to see from them is for them to start getting hot. That wild card game seemed to get that started. They hit the cover off the ball to win the first two games at Texas, then managed to win an extras to win the series in Toronto. Were you surprised to see the series go the way that it did and for them to show that early dominance and get the sweep? I was surprised. Um, I picked Texas to win, so my line of thinking was that uh, you know, they didn't show it in that series, but Texas this year played a very well-rounded style of baseball. Good starting pitching at the latter end of the year. They got their bullpen figured out, uh, good arms, you know, good depth lineup that could beat you in a number of ways, whether it be string hit together, run the bases, hit for power, uh, and defensively pretty good as well. So I was sitting there going like, okay, they look like the kind of team that could do well in the postseason. Whereas the Blue Jays, they're kind of old school at starting pitching and it's home runs. These things can win in the postseason, but I think we're we're used to that Royals kind of method now, just using that all-around blanket of good baseball to just overwhelm your opponents. And it just didn't work out. The Rangers didn't play well. Darvish and Hamels didn't pitch well. Colby Lewis, not surprisingly, did not pitch well at the Rogers Center. And you're right, now we're in a situation where it's, we weren't sure coming into the postseason, but now we're sure that this Blue Jays lineup is hot. And that's scary because a hot Blue Jays lineup is a lineup that's hitting a lot of home runs. It's a lineup that's putting pressure on pitchers. And it's a lineup that also has very good starting pitching backing it. So you're going to have lots of runs with not so many runs on the other side. I don't even know if we really saw that last postseason where it seemed like the Blue Jays were really struggling for every run they got. It didn't look like that in the, in the Rangers series. It looked like they were just going to town. So we will see. Uh, they look alive and well. The other series in the American League ended just as quickly, really, with the Indians winning the first two games at home before holding on to win game three against the Boston Red Sox at Fenway Park. You arguably had the best lineup in baseball with five or so guys hitting above 300 in Boston's Red Sox going up against a Cleveland pitching staff that was really riddled with injuries throughout the season. And you just have to scratch your head because coming into this series, you could almost put it to chalk that Boston's hitting was going to be able to outmaneuver Cleveland's pitching. Even if they were able to bring in Andrew Miller, you assume they would get to the starters, but it really was a role reversal. What did you see happen in that series for Boston's bats to really go cold the way they did? Uh, I saw a number of things. I think uh, looking back at the start of that series, 
remember the, the Red Sox got that run in the first inning. It could have been two runs in the first inning. They had the guy thrown out at home plate. And then Andrew Penintendi hit a home run. I think it was the next inning or the third inning. And it really seemed like the Red Sox came to play. They looked like they were like ready to just completely overwhelm the Indians and Trevor Bauer. Then you had those three home runs in that one inning, and it just seemed like that sucked the life out of them. Um, and then the other thing that would ha- happen, I don't think they anticipated, I don't think any of us anticipated that Terry Francona would go to Andrew Miller so early. Right. Um, that completely changed the dynamic of that game, and it completely changed the dynamic of the next game as well. Uh, you know, they knew that Andrew Miller threw 40 pitches, they knew that Cody Allen threw 40 pitches. So I think the mindset against Corey Kluber was work the count make him throw pitches so we can get into the soft underbelly of this bullpen because they looked really tentative. Like they were over eager in the first game and then kind of overcompensated that by taking too many pitches against Corey Kluber. Uh, bad idea. Just don't give Corey Kluber an inch because he'll take a mile as they say. And then in the third game, I don't know what they were doing. Josh Tomlin throws strikes. Josh Tomlin is going to be in the strike zone. Swing the bats. There were a lot of, Taking the first pitch, taking the second pitch, you're down 0-1, you're down 0-2. It's like, what are you doing? Because this time, Andrew Miller is going to be there earlier in the game. So the Red Sox offense was really good, but I think they got kind of caught in between after what happened in that first game where they were kind of caught between pressing and also trying to have good at-bats. Also credit to the Indians pitchers after all this ranting and raving about the Red Sox offense. They executed um, they were really good. And the defense is really good, too, especially was it the eighth inning yesterday where Mookie Betts had that hot smash that got gloved and Xander Bogarts had the hot smash that went right to the second baseman. Right, they were um, hitting line drives. Yeah, and it wasn't just the whole series. It wasn't just uh, defenders making good plays. It was also advanced scouting putting those players in the right position. So um, hats off to the Indians. Uh, the Red Sox didn't bring their A game, but the, um, the Indians sure did. They were they were really impressive in those three games. So um, I am very much looking forward to seeing what they have for the Blue Jays because I think it's a really good matchup right now. So the Dodgers National Series, the Dodgers take game one, the Nats win the next two pretty handily, and then you have Kershaw going to the mound on short days rest for the Dodgers, thinking that he will be able to get them a victory, and he pitched well, but then the bullpen ended up getting the game tied, and now here we are. Game five will be another do-or-die game, obviously, but they will not have Clayton Kershaw if it should come to that. The Nationals would have the advantage when it comes to the starting pitching, you would think. What do you foresee happening? I would side with the Nationals. They're not only going to have the home field advantage, but it's looking like it will be Max Scherzer against some combination of Julio Urias and Rich Hill on a short rest. Right. Um, which basically means it's Max Scherzer versus Johnny Holstaff. You know, I the one thing about Max Scherzer, I he I rated him in the MLB 300 as the best pitcher in baseball this year. Uh, terrific command, can miss bats in and outside the strike zone, but he will give up home runs. So if the Dodgers can get a couple of those and keep the score low, but the thing is, I mean, I just don't know about uh, Urias Hill and Johnny Holstaff. I mean, that's just. You give the Nationals an edge in a matchup like that. So I guess I would say I'd pick them to win, which would set us up for the Nationals and the NLCS finally because they haven't been there ever since they have became the Nationals. That's yeah. right. And they'll be playing the Cubs. 
Many people believed they would perhaps sweep this series after going ahead 2-0, but the 13-inning drama-filled game went to the Giants late, late into Monday morning, and we know had an even year on their side when it comes to winning the World Series. I picked the Cubs to win the World Series this year. Um, part of that, I'll admit, is sentimental. Uh, the Cubs have been one of the only good things about 2016. And I want to see them win the World Series before the election kills us all in November. The even-year magic thing is something that I was joking about pretty much all night during that ridiculous game on Monday, talking about the Giants uttering the different incantations for even-year magic and watching all things go to hell. They have made the Cubs really tough. Like, the Giants... You know, this does, it's not something that's going to show up in a scorebook or in a stat sheet or whatever you, or maybe. And we talk about team chemistry being a thing you can't quantify, but they do have a culture there. Um, and they do have just an atmosphere where they pick each other up and an atmosphere where they don't give up. Um, it's something that you can feel when you watch the games. It's something you can feel when you're around their guys. Um, it's a very real team atmosphere, but the Cubs, while they don't have three rings attached to it, they really have the same thing. Um, Joe Madden is one of the best personality managers in the game today, if not the best. And they have a perfect combination of grizzled veterans who have been there and done that and young guys who are, you know, youthful, energetic, and all the usual kind of cliches, but they also got some very valuable experience in the postseason last year. So, And like I said, I want to see them win before everything goes to hell, so I'm, I still got the Cubs. Hitting on game three, not necessarily for what happened in the game, but for what fans were forced to sit through and the poor journalists and newspapers that had to meet their midnight deadlines, having to just paint a very broad picture of what was happening in the game. I know you're a West Coast guy, so it was a little bit easier for you, but for us East Coast people, a game ending close to 3 a.m., even though it went into extra innings, is something that is very difficult to swallow in playoff baseball. And this seems to be a repeated argument every year when it comes to playing games in October and even sometimes in November. The games do end up going very long, even if they are to start at 8 o'clock. And a lot of people complain about it. They don't like staying up that late. There's the argument, of course, that children or early workers that have to get ready early in the morning or are unable to watch the games. Is there anything that you think baseball can do to rectify this situation or is that just something that we have to deal with you know i i get that you need prime time games um i think in a situation like what happened yesterday uh they started that game at i think six thirty local time which is you know normally if you're going to do a late game for the playoffs you started at like 5 p.m local time so as soon as I saw that start time, I'm like, okay, that's normal in terms of, uh, you know, during the regular season, the Giants will start at 7 p.m. local time. So it was actually kind of like a half hour earlier. But you know that, you know, during the regular season, they're playing for a local audience. During the postseason, they're playing for a national audience. Right. So as soon as I saw that start time, I'm like, yeah, that could lead to problems. And not only that, um, but the Dodgers and Nationals, didn't know what time they were going to be playing the next day until that game was concluded. That's a huge problem, not just for all the fans who are going to go to that Dodgers Nationals game, but for the players and managers, coaches, whatever it may be as well. Basically sitting around watching this game when you're supposed to be getting your sleep, 
not knowing you need to be at the ballpark in uh, you know 15 hours or whatever it may be. So I think the you know for the most part once we, you know now that we're going to get past the division series round, there's only four teams left standing. It's not going to be as big of a deal. But in the division series round, especially when you have so many different series, so many different games, you do need to. Or I think Major League Baseball can do a better job of spacing them around. And also managing the schedules for when things go haywire with rainouts and whatnot. So looking ahead to the championship series, we can start with the American League since we at least know what that matchup will be. The Blue Jays will travel to Cleveland to play the Indians. What do you think some of the different keys will be to win that series and advance to the World Series? You know, I'm going to fall into the same trap and pick the team that I think can play the better, well-rounded style of baseball, and that's the Cleveland Indians. The The way they can string hits together, the way they can play defense, we know that with their bullpen, they can shorten the game to basically four or five inning game, or you know, five or six inning game, whatever maybe. I'll take my chances with them. I think the, the Blue Jays are, it's all starting pitching and home runs. If you can silence either one of those things, you'll be fine. Um, and if they get into a bullpen battle with the Indians, I don't think they can match up. It's going to be a good series. I can see it going six or even seven, but I think the Indians are just the better team and more equipped to uh, modern postseason baseball. And even though at this point we don't officially know who will make the NLCS, I'm guessing you're going to stick with your World Series prediction and say that the Chicago Cubs will beat either the Dodgers or the Nationals. Yes. Um, I have no choice but to stick with the Cubs. Like I said, sentimental choice, uh, and also a really darn good baseball team, no matter which way you slice it. I don't think we've, I don't think I've really said enough about how good they are. This is a team that, in the regular season, scored 250 more runs than they allowed. They had the best starting rotation ERA in baseball. In the second half, they had, I think, the second best bullpen ERA in baseball. They had one of the best defenses in baseball history. They have a lineup that can work, count, hit home runs, steal bases, and do whatever. Uh, they have a great manager. You know, they, it feels like a trap because it's, they're almost too perfect, but they really are that good. So, and you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, 108 years, they're due. Do you see anything that an opponent might be able to do to beat them? Is there an Achilles heel that the Chicago Cubs have, aside from the curses and the bad luck for 108 years? You know, that's a tough one. I'm trying to kind of condense something that the Giants have done to them in the little nuggets. It's really difficult because it's it's been kind of like a weird thing where they've beaten them in a variety of ways. And, you know, I don't think I can just say, oh, just go get three really hard-hit balls off of this shot and you'll be fine. I think the one thing the Giants have done well, I was looking at the stats earlier, and I think it reflected this. If I was any good at my job, I'd know for sure, but... The Giants pitchers have done a good job of getting ahead of Cubs hitters, which is kind of what you need to do because their defining attribute as an offense is their ability to work pitchers, take pitches, had the highest walk rate in baseball this year. So if you just go right at them and throw them strikes, make you make them beat you, um, you know, you have a chance. Uh, then you just have to worry about matching up against their pitching. So we have the Cleveland Indians who haven't, won a World Series since 1948. The Blue Jays haven't since 93. The Cubs, as we know, have not since 1908. The Dodgers have not since 1988. The Giants are the closest, 2014, 2012, 2010, the even years, as we said. 
if the Nationals were to make it, they've never won the World Series. Could you almost say that it's great for baseball this year, no matter who is to win the World Series, just because of the parity that we have going? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great thing for the fans. Uh, you know, it had been like a Dodgers-Red Sox World Series. I think Major League Baseball would have been very happy. That would have been good for ratings. But, you know, the general fan, unless you're a Red Sox or Giants fan, you've been there, done that. 2013-2014 World Champion. So, um I think the Cubs, not just for me, but I think for everybody, I think the Cubs are a sentimental favorite to go win it. Um, it would be really cool to see the end of a 100-year curse. I have the Indians and Cubs in the World Series at this point, and yeah, you're talking about two very long droughts being snapped either way. It's good for the narrative. You know, we can we can discuss whether or not it's good for creating more fans in terms of drawing people who don't normally watch baseball towards it. We can talk about uh, Major League Baseball ratings, but at the end of the day, I mean, I'm a baseball writer. I root for stories. Um, the Indians and the Cubs winning the World Series would be a great story. The Blue Jays or the Nationals winning the World Series would be a great story. Um, so I'll, I'm happy either way if that happens. Not only for the Cubs' excitement for breaking the curse, but I think for baseball in general because of the younger players that they have on their team, specifically to this team in this year, it would really help the sport to make them the new faces, if you will, of baseball, because it seems like every year we're losing another well-known future Hall of Fame player to retirement, and it's now time to sort of change the guard with the Mike Trouts and the Bryce Harpers of the world, and this Chicago Cubs team has that makeup to potentially be a team that we might see in the World Series in the years to come, and of course, Let's not count our chickens before they hatch because of what's happened to the Cubs in the past. I think for them, they seem to be one of the, if not the brightest teams in baseball. And for them to be successful, I really think would bring success back when it comes to people showing interest in baseball. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the one good thing that baseball has going for it, you know, if the league does want young, exciting players, and it does, um, there are a lot of those in baseball today. Um, we've seen in the last few years kind of like the, the star power has shifted younger on the age scale. Um, and, you know, we've seen the Bryce Harpers, we've seen the Mike Trouts, we've seen the Carlos Correas, we've seen all the Cubs guys. And, you know, it was kind of lost. Well, not really lost, but it was over underlooked in the uh, the big poppy shadow in Boston this year. But Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, Jackie Bradley Jr., Andrew Benintendi, all on one team in a major media market. Right. That's big. And the New York Yankees are with Gary Sanchez, Aaron Judge, uh, Tyler Austin, Greg Bird's going to be up uh, back next year. They got some young talent too. So there's a lot of young talent creeping into the major league ranks. Um, and baseball should and definitely is very happy about that. Do you have any projects that you're working on that will be coming up in the next couple of days that fans of your readership might be able to look out for? We might be able to keep an eye out for when it comes to what you're putting out on Bleacher Report. Um, I have something on Andrew Miller on how he's kind of the the linchpin of the ALCS after you know just the way he's going to influence the games and the way he. Uh, Frank Cohen is going to use him. I think he's a major player in that series. So I have a feature coming out on him. Nothing too big. It's like 1,300 words. Nothing too big. I mean, I, all my big projects at this point are pretty, pretty much behind me until 
the winter. We're we're basically in postseason mode, so we're kind of taking it as it comes. My nonsense can be read on a regular basis at Bleacher Report, um, and I will gladly annoy you on Twitter if you follow me. Excellent. Well, it was a pleasure talking baseball with you, Zach. I appreciate you taking some time to wrap some things up from the series that are already over and look ahead to the series to come as par tradition with fall baseball in October. We're usually in for some pretty exciting series and games, and it looks like that'll be the case for this year. Looking forward to the next couple series. We'll see if your World Series prediction of the Chicago Cubs comes true, but Thanks for taking a couple minutes to go over what's happened so far and give us a better idea of what we might be seeing in the future as well. Yeah, man. This was awesome. Thanks for having me on. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me under that same handle on Twitter at LondonBridge. As we've mentioned throughout the show, call in or text into the bridge anytime, any day at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured on the next installment of The Bridge. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes to immediately be notified when the next episode is released by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. You can also find The Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. The Bridge is broadcast live every Wednesday night on Sports Radio America. You can find The Bridge on the Shows tab at sportsradioamerica.com or listen to Sports Radio America on the TuneIn app. You can subscribe to The Bridge newsletter, which will provide weekly updates and behind-the-scenes information about the next show by visiting londonbridge.com slash email. You can also email the show at media at londonbridge.com. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll take a look around Major League Baseball and see where we stand in the race to reach the Fall Classic. We'll take a look around the National Football League and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.